All right, good morning. It's uh, it's Saturday, the 26th of July. This is Solder Smoke 163, Tribal Knowledge, Part 3, with Pete Giuliano, N6QW. We're calling this Sideband Sidecars. This is kind of odds and ends, things that we meant to talk about in the previous two episodes, but uh, didn't get around to. Pete, you can't hear it now, but I hope by the time this thing makes it to the internet, we're going to have some of that uh, four days in May, bluegrass music rising in the background right about now. Ooh, cool. <laughs> you know, they had a touch of high-class production values to the show. Um, you know, before we start, I want to just remind our listeners how privileged we are to have uh, Pete Giuliano with us. After our last show, I was talking about, um, I was thinking about balanced modulators, and I was thinking about, you know, that's how you, you wake up some mornings thinking about balanced modulators. And I I did. And I was thinking about the balance modulators in my Bidex rigs and whether I had done everything the way I was supposed to and whether I was getting optimum uh, carrier suppression. And and these these are the kind of things that a radio amateur worries about. And I I turned, as you do in this situation, to experimental methods in RF design. And uh, I was summoned through it and I came to uh, to the balance mod section. And much to my astonishment, I found in there... uh, Pete Giuliano, listed under his own call. What was the old call? Uh, W6JFR. W6JFR. There he was. You know, uh, and uh, Wes and the other authors of uh, Experimental Methods had described the contribution that Pete had made in, uh, in adding uh, a balance control, I think, to the, was it to the SBL1 mixer? Correct. That's right. And, uh, and I, just, I, I just sat back and I said, wow, you know you're in the presence of greatness when you come across a guy and he's actually... <laughs> in and cited and quoted in in emrfd so uh congratulations to you on that pete I, i'm sure i'd seen it a long time ago but uh when i saw it again and after our uh, our first two episodes here it really, really was a was a you know impressive once again um let's see just a couple just maybe you and i can both talk a little bit about what we're working on my i'm i've been working on the moxon my moxon antenna is up on the roof and I'm telling you, it's mightily impressive. Tony Fishpool of the GQRP Club saw a picture of it online and declared it a thing of beauty. You know, and, and it is. It looks like it looks to me like it's like spreading its wings, trying to fly through the ionosphere. It's mostly aimed at Europe. Um, I've been having great fun with it. It was picked up, by the way, by Hackaday, which is that that website that uh, that covers all kinds of uh, hacks, electronic and software and mostly computer, but they occasionally uh, comment on ham radio stuff. So I was glad to see that. But I've been having tremendous fun with this thing. I got my little TV rotor here. I spin the thing around. I point it to Europe. I point it to the West Coast. Great fun. What have you been working on, Pete? Well, uh, right now, I'm looking to build another single sideband transceiver. And and actually, uh, this is based... uh, it's two or three generations beyond a Bidex. Uh, matter of fact, there's a, uh, a very prolific builder down in Australia, Peter Parker, VK3YE. Oh, sure. And, and Peter's come up with a, a, a radio called the uh, the Noblis Wonder. And uh, essentially, uh, it uh, it has a 7.15 megahertz uh, crystal filter in it. And uh, essentially, it's a single-channel radio. So I, I'm looking to uh, take that, uh, take Peter's design and uh, add uh, a VXO, and uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this when we get into the crystal filters. 
But uh, using some standard crystals, uh, I think that radio can be put on 20 and 17 meters. And uh, matter of fact, a local ham and I are uh, building two units. And so we'll see how that goes. But uh, I, I think you can, uh, that, that's what's so wonderful about the Internet. You can find one thing and then suddenly it triggers another idea and, and you're off and running. So um, we're, we're looking now at another two-band radio. Oh, man, this is a, a really cool. And, you know, um, Peter Parker has been on the show. I mean, he was, uh, he were, uh, uh, I think about five or six episodes ago, we had him on talking about the phasing rigs. And I want to get him back. I want to get him back to talk a little bit more about his double sideband rigs, which is what first brought me into communication with, um, uh, with Peter. And he's, he, he's the designer of the famous Beach of 40 di- uh, double sideband rig for 40, for 40 meters that guys are building all around the world. And uh, he produces fantastic videos, too. So, yeah, and I, I, I think that's a really interesting design, the single-channel uh, rig. We, there was a rig like that built for Whisper, for the Whisper system. And, um, and I've seen that approach one other time. I think they, they used it for a little 80-meter warbler that was for PSK-31 on the uh, 3579 uh, frequency, which has become something of a controversy, by the way. <laughs> you think everything right. is controversial? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> There's now the... It's now the color burst uh, liberation army operating out there, <laughs> and I, I, I think I have been enlisted. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, good stuff. All right, well that that sounds terrific, and that's very very appropriate. The first thing that we have on our list here today, um, it's Pete. Is just talk a little bit about ladder filters. We um, we kind of skimmed over this in the earlier episodes, and I think it's important because this is, of course, the uh, the heart of sideband rigs of, of this kind uh it's interesting peter parker he doesn't really like crystal filters and he's not the only one i think rick campbell also expressed a dislike for crystal filters they they kind of view it as kind of an aesthetically uh unappealing way to get rid of the other sideband they uh, they're more into uh into phasing especially rick campbell has done a lot of work with uh with uh, phasing designs and i think uh, peter parker has kind of expressed a a preference for that. I'm, I'm, I'm more of a. I guess I'm more of a filter guy, and I suspect you are too. But right. um, so it's important for us to talk about these filters. I, I was thinking about how I got my, the very first crystal filter I built was for uh, my bare bones superhead designed by Doug Demaw, and you know, uh, I, it was it was in a QST article, and I I was really interested in building it, and I got the whole thing done. It was pretty simple: 40673 dual gate MOSFETs, almost all the way through. But when I got to the part about the crystal filter, uh, Doug started describing kind of a really complicated process uh, that in which you would have to determine the, uh, the, the actual physical parameters of the crystal. And there was a lot of the test gear. The test gear that he described was actually more complicated than the receiver. <laughs> so I was, uh, frankly, intimidated. But, you know, Doug as he often did in his writing, provided kind of a, kind of a, an easy out. <laughs> he, I think there was one line in the article that said, but if all else fails, you could just try the, the capacitor values that I've used and see how it works. So that's what I did. I got the crystals. They were all color burst crystals at 3579. And he had uh, capacitors to ground after each crystal. And I forget what the value was. It was like, it might have been like 50 picofarads, something like that. And I didn't do any measurements. I didn't do any uh, parameter checking of the crystals. I just threw them in there, and it worked pretty well. Now, 
I think I was fortunate because it was a CW filter, so it was designed to be very narrow. So I didn't have to worry too much about the ripple because the, the bandwidth was so small. As long as you, you got it kind of narrow there, it was all right. But it's a little bit more complicated for, uh, for phone. Start out by saying thanks to Wes Hayward for being a real pioneer in this area. And every time you, you start reading about this, you, you come across a Wes's work and his encouragement for uh, amateurs to, to do to actually work and design better filters. And also, thanks to Farhan, because Farhan was the one who reached out there from Hyderabad and told me that I should actually try to, to figure out how to measure and design crystal filters. So thanks to you, Farhan, there. Anyway, I'm going to go through. What I, I thought we'd do, Pete, is just kind of go through kind of quickly what I did in, in designing and measuring these filters, just so that not, not so much to provide people with a detailed description of, of how to, but sort of an overview of what goes on here. Uh, I think you'll agree that, that the filter is really the heart of an SSB rig, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that, that distinguishes a good rig from a really good rig. Yeah, and you know, because basically we're talking about two really key values. It's the bandwidth of, of the receiver and, and of the transmitter, frankly, uh, but mostly the receiver, and then uh, and then the smoothness of that bandwidth, because you could have the you could have the bandwidth just right, but if the passband is kind of bumpy, you're going to get distortion because certain frequencies, certain audio frequencies, are going to be passed through without attenuation, and others are going to be dropped. So you're, it's going to sound rough. So uh, bandwidth and smoothness are the two kind of values I think we're looking looking at. I think w what we have to do is start out by thinking of that crystal as um, kind of a rock equivalent of an LC circuit. That, that really helps to have that concept in, in, in your mind. I came across a diagram of this in the old um, Electric Radio magazine, and it was really, really nice. It was a handwritten, hand-drawn diagram, but it showed the crystal case, and it had inside the case a resistor, a capacitor, and a coil in series. And that was most, they said, look, that's really mostly what's going on in there with the rock actually performing the functions of those coils and capacitors and, and resistors with one little capacitor across the whole thing and those are the plates of the holder that's holding that crystal in place so you it gives you real good mental image what's going on but we have to kind of determine what the values of that resistor that capacitor and those, that, that coil and those two capacitors are and that's when we what we talk about characterizing the crystal this is where I got into trouble with Doug DeMoor's article because the, the, the procedure in those days was quite complicated and, like I said, required a lot of test gear. But G3UUR has come to the rescue. And he's come up with a real uh, uh, much simpler technique that will enable us to measure these parameters. And all you really have to do is you build this little oscillator and you have a switch that switches in a 30 picofarad capacitor. And what you do is you measure the frequency that's coming out of this oscillator with your crystal under test in the socket. And you throw the switch and you add 30 picofarads. And anyway, when you add the 30 picofarads, uh, you see a change in frequency. And from that, you can determine, using the appropriate bit of software, those the values for the motional inductance, the motional capacitance, and the series resistance. He's holding up a picture. You guys can't see it, but Pete Giuliano's that's, reached. That's the test oscillator. He's got a test. I got one just like it. Yours, <laughs> yours is much neater because you used that. You, you used the two hundred fifty thousand dollar CNC machine to build that thing, right? 
no, no, no. I did that with a manual machine, but there, oh, okay. there, 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 there it is right oh, there. Oh, yours looks a lot better than mine, but it's the same thing, same little switch and an oscillator. And uh, it's fantastic. And then you get you, you get this number that, okay, how far did this frequency switch? What's the frequency? And at that point, you turn to Todd Gale's webpage. Todd Gale is uh, the QRP Pops guy, VE7BPO, fantastic website, really kind of an indispensable, unmissable stop for all QRP homebrewers. And he has a little app that he came up with there. And you take the numbers that you got from the G3 UUR device, you plug it in there, and Todd's app then spits out the values for L, C, and R for your uh, your uh, your crystal. Now you know what the motion. Now you know what the parameters are. You've got the key information, but now you have to turn to a couple of different bits of software. And there's many different software packages out there. I used two of them. I used one from AADE, almost all digital electronics. You can you could download his software for free. Very nice of him to do that. I used that, and I also used a bit of software that came from Experimental Methods and RF Design. It's called GPLA. But what both these things really do is they ask you, okay, what are the parameters of the crystal? And then they say, what bandwidth do you want? What kind of what kind of pass band do you want? But basically they're saying, okay, we know what the parameters of the crystal are. What bandwidth do you want? Do you want a CW filter with down at around 500 hertz? Or do you want a sideband filter at, at 2.5 kilohertz or 3 kilohertz? You tell it. And then what it does is it tells you, okay, if you want that bandwidth with these particular crystals, use these capacitors going to ground after each crystal. And it also tells you what the termination impedance has to be on either side of the filter, which is really important. So um, I, I was amazed, uh, Pete. I, you know, when I, when I started going with this, I, it, it's not like it all came together at once. You kind of have to play with the software. And you have to fumble with it. You have to get familiar with it. You learn a little bit more about what we're talking about with the parameters. But um, anyway, I reached that happy moment where the software kind of spit out the values. And I said, aha, that's it. I can do this. So instead of just going blind and plugging in Doug DeMoore's values for crystals that might be far removed from what I have, um, I, I, um, I did this. And I wonder if you have you had a similar experience. Is that sort of how you do it? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, but I've also taken a little bit of a shortcut, okay. And uh, some of the one of the shortcuts is to first of find uh, four or five crystals that are within about fifty hertz of each yeah, other. Yeah. And so I, I use the measurement, and just kind of a rule of thumb is uh, typically uh, you'll use the smaller values of capacitors, say. Uh, something between 39 and, uh, say, 82 picofarad for the sideband filters. And that gives you about a 2.5 kilohertz spread. And then uh, for CW, you get up into the higher values of capacitance, and that's uh, starting at 330 to maybe 470. Now, the, the purists would like the 470s because that's a very narrow bandwidth filter. But unfortunately, my ears uh, at this stage of my life are not that good, and I, I, I don't like those real narrow filters uh, for CW. So um, I also found that empirically, you typically see an in, in and out impedance uh, with a uh, four crystal filter of, of somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 200 to 400 ohms. Yeah. So uh, I, I typically say, okay, let's pick 300 ohms, 
and then I'll use a uh, uh, an impedance match uh, in say and I like to do I like to use 50 ohms uh, for in and out of all my little circuit blocks and so then I'll just do a 50 50 ohm to six uh, 300 ohm match and uh, that seems to work pretty well but but I wanted to take uh, two steps back and talk a little bit about uh, the the choice of center frequency. Um, I, I noticed in Farhan's Minima, uh, he uses a 20 megahertz uh, crystal uh, filter, and uh, it's got uh, kind of an interesting configuration. I think there's eight or ten crystals in the filter. I'm not yeah, quite there's, sure. Yeah, there's double double crystals on either end. Yeah, so it, it's it's quite an interesting configuration that, that I've never seen before, but uh, seems to work really well. But I, I think, you know, for the standard crystals you're buying, one thing to kind of keep in mind is... Uh, when you look at the specs, you'll see that it says this is rated at 50 parts per million. And so that they're talking about the accuracy of, of the crystal. And uh, if, you, if you translate that uh, into, say, four, a 4 megahertz crystal, that means those things can be off 200 hertz <laughs> and still yeah. be within spec. Yeah. And, and if you picked a, and you pick a 10 megahertz uh, crystal... Uh, that thing could be off a half a kilohertz. So uh, you can be really chasing your tail, uh, even though you spit out all these, uh, all the pieces of data. Uh, all the crystals individually may may not be really close. So um, choice of center frequency is probably pretty pretty significant. And I tend to like uh, the lower frequencies, like around four or five megahertz. And uh, in interestingly enough, the first crystal filter I built was uh, 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 the uh, K1SWL, Small Winter Labs. Yeah. Uh, Dave Benson, he, he had an uh, article in QST, of the, uh, which later became a product line, the CW transceivers. And uh, I didn't want to buy a kit from him, so I just homebrewed. And I used a 5.185 megahertz uh, crystal for the IF and a 2 megahertz uh, VFO. And uh, I, I got a little experience building the filters, and, and I found that, uh, uh, that that was kind of interesting. And I said, hey, this works pretty good. So that was some 20 years ago. So I, I, I built quite a few since then. But, but the frequency I tend to like is 4.9152 megahertz. And there's a reason for that. Um, because uh, first of the parts per million, you're down in the 4 megahertz range. So it's a little, a little easier to find crystals that are spot-on frequency. That's a good point. And secondly, um, commercially, there's uh, uh, crystals that you can use in a VXO. For instance, with a 4.9152, if you uh, buy a 33-cent crystal from DigiKey at 19.2 megahertz, if you take the subtractive mix of that, that puts you right on the 20-meter QRP single sideband frequency, 14.285. <laughs> So, so I mean, it's it's really thirty three cents. You know, you build a little simple oscillator, and, and you're right on the QRP frequency. If you took uh, eleven point five two megahertz crystals and put that in a VXO and then run that through a diode doubler, you get twenty three point oh four. It puts you right in the middle of the seventeen meter uh, phone band. So, I mean, uh, building a crystal filter and and following all the parameters and building a really good filter, that's only half the equation. <laughs> Then what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, how, how, then what are you going to do about the rest of it? You know, how, you know, how do you make I think, that work? I think that frequency that you picked 
you know, we should make T-shirts about that with the number yeah. on there. <laughs> yeah. You know, and just say, that's the way to go. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what's used in the K2. I mean, I didn't, I, I looked at the K2 schematic and said, if it's good enough for those guys, it ought to work in a radio. Now, the, the, the short side of that is that works good on, on the higher frequencies. But if you try to put that on 40 meters and, and you know, the ladder filters tend to like lower sideband. Uh, you have to put an additive mix, so you'd have to put a, like a two and a half megahertz uh, uh, LO signal to put that on 40 meters, and I, I, I've done that. And and but then I had a problem with the two and a half g getting through some of the networks, yeah. so I had to put a I had to put some additional filtering in there. So it's 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 not all you know. It's not like pantyhose, one size fits all. Yeah. Uh, there, there's some uh, <laughs> there's some trade-offs that you have. So depending upon where you want to operate, but but I'd say. Uh, some really good choices of frequency are 4.9152, So those are the ones that that tend to work uh, uh, pretty well, and then it, you can do some things uh, in addition to that to get them on other frequencies. So it's not only the filter, but how's that going to fit in your overall scheme? Yeah, excellent point. What this is something I wanted to talk about a little bit about whether these kinds of ladder filters are useful in USB or LSB mode. And I think a lot of times when you read the literature, it, it kind of let, makes people think that they could only be used as LSB filters. And what, what it is, is if you look at the, the skirts on these filters, you could see that on the upper side of the passband, the skirt is much steeper. And then on the lower side, the skirt kind of just trails off. It's just the nature of the beast. But it doesn't, it's not dramatically different. It's, it's not as steep as on the upper side. So a lot of people think that, or a lot of the, I think a lot of the, um, the people who've been writing about it just point this out. And I got the impression that, oh, you could only use this for on, an LSB application. But then when I built my uh, 20, uh, my, um, my uh, BIDX for 20 and 40, it turned out that I needed for, for one of the one of the bands, I needed to have the BFO on the lower side, and on the other band, I needed to have it on the higher side. Right. So I had to shift the BFO frequency. Now, yeah, I mean it's better when you're running the BFO on the higher side because it's it's you could place the the BFO where you want it closer without having to worry about losing some of the attenuation that comes from the filter. But it's not dramatically different, and I get really sufficient uh, carrier the additional carrier attenuation. On the other side, also. So I'm just saying that I think you could use it either way. It's probably a little bit better to use it in the uh, use these things as LSB filters. And of course, you have to watch out because, like you said, there's sideband inversions going on. So just because right. you're on a lower sideband band like 40 meters, it doesn't mean that you're going to be using that filter as a lower sideband filter. It depends. You have to kind of figure it out a little bit. Right. Absolutely. But anyway, get let's see. Uh, getting back now. Okay, so we've gotten to the point where we got where uh, Todd Gale's software has spit out the 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 parameters for the crystals, and we've used the uh, AADE or or GPLA software to tell us what the capacitor values are and what those all important uh, termination impedances are for uh, the filter. Then. I, well, then you built it, and you're wondering, okay, is this for real? I mean, I know what the software is predicting, and it's predicting these beautiful little, you know, very flat-topped um, passbands just at the ex exact value that you want. But, of course, you don't really know because the simulation is one thing, but 
as I think Wes Hayward has said, uh, the uh, actual construction, the simulation is the greater experiment. Yeah, <laughs> so, right. Anyway, um, what I did is this was this hap- it happened that around this time I was playing around with the Arduino and the DDS, and I realized that I had sitting in front of me a really precise signal generator. You know, you can't you can't do this kind of you can't do this kind of measurement with a Heathkit SG8 because it just wobbles too much. You need something where you could really move that thing at like 10 hertz or you know 50 hertz increments. So I just set up a little um, experiment with the with the crystal filter. I properly terminated it at both sides. Farhan suggested going through 6dB pads to make sure that a consistent impedance is is present on either side. And um, I put my uh, Rigold scope on one side and had it measuring RMS output. And I put the DDS generator on the other. And I just sat there with a notepad and manually moved it. I think I was moving it. I I don't know. I think I was probably moving it at 100 hertz increments. And I just wrote it all out. I changed the frequency and I I wrote out the output value. And then I plugged it into a, a spreadsheet, just a regular Microsoft spreadsheet. And changed everything to log values because you want to have it you want log values you don't want the, the straight values there it's because we're, t- we're talking we want it we want an output that'll be useful in db so i i just put like i, I grafted so it would produce like the, the change uh, in db and then bang the uh the, the the spreadsheet software that was usually you know designed originally for accounting can produce the graph that you need of the passband and and i was it was a great moment for me when i when those uh, graphs came out of the spreadsheet and I compared them to what had been predicted by uh, GPLA and AADE uh, design software, and it matched, I mean, almost perfectly. It was, so it was a real kind of a triumph of the simulation and a demonstration of the usefulness of that those, those uh, software packages. But um, anyway, that, was, that for me, that was great. And then, then I really noticed the difference when I went in there, and I, you know, these, these kind of carefully designed filters sounded a lot better than filters where I had just sort of took a, you know, kind of winged it. <laughs> so, uh, yes, design is a good thing. And, and it's better to design first and then build later. Once again, we I think we've proven that this, this morning, Pete. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, this is, uh, uh, again, my term of noodling. <laughs> <laughs> this is where noodling comes in to uh, really think about it. And um, I, I want to also comment that typically... Uh, in the homebrew filters, you'll see uh, a, a four-pole filter. You know that that seems to be kind of typical, but uh, yeah, that's what the bit uh, has. And and I uh, actually I built a six-pole, and uh, at eight megahertz, which by the way is another good choice of frequency, at eight megahertz, and it, and I uh, have separate oscillators for upper and lower sideband. That is dramatic. <laughs> I mean, that is a real dramatic difference, and so. Uh, a little time and care, I think, is the the point that you're making, and and doing some experimentation and taking data can really pay off. I mean, that uh, audibly, I can tell the difference with that eight pole filter that it's 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 sharp in that it rejects the stuff off to the side, but it has a very pleasant sound to it. So so that's kind of kind of what you want, you know. It's the best of all worlds. You know, I was looking at I, I put it up on the blog this week. I was looking at Jeff Dam WA7MLH. You know, he, and he is is famous same in the same much the same way that you are, Pete, because you are an EMRFD, and if you look at solid state design for the radio amateur, Jeff Dam 
was in there building a lot of the circuits that Wes and the others had described. So they would they would describe the circuit and they would say, okay, let's take a look at uh, Jeff Dam's version of it. And Jeff will have built the rig. And Jeff has this really fantastic website with all kinds of pictures of his construction. His construction, I put, is really inspiringly ugly. It, it's like ugly to the max. And uh, but it but but really really great circuitry. And I saw he, the, the page that I put up on the blog this week has several descriptions of uh, crystal filters that Jeff built. And at one point, he built I think a four crystal filter. He built two of them, and he put them kind of on both sides of the IF amp. And so it would you'd have one, and then it would go through the IF amp, then you would go through another another four crystal filter. So he was doing a lot of experimentation with kind of additional crystal filters. And these these crystals are so cheap, why not? I mean, it's not like the old days yeah. where you were ordering them from a uh, you know, custom manufacturer. We're just buying bags of these things now. Uh, kind of a, an, an ironic uh, kind of a side product of the computer revolution. Who would have thought that these crystals were going to be used in analog, discrete component, uh, homebrew sideband transceivers? <laughs> right, Jeff. Right. Well, while while you're mentioning uh, that, there's a uh, ARL publication, and since you mentioned the two separate filters, there's a seven megahertz uh, QRP transceiver. I think it's called in the QRP Power um, uh, publication. And Zach Lau, W1VT, uh, built the seven megahertz uh, transceiver, and it uses two three-pole filters. It's oh, wow. Uh, above and beyond. The IF stage, and I, I built that, and that really works well. Wow. That really, really works well. So, if you uh, if you can find that article, that that's worth looking at because, uh, in my mind, that could be adapted. Uh, matter of fact, I was looking at changing that from a CW to a sideband transceiver. So, uh, not that difficult to do. Well, easy to say, <laughs> not yeah. that difficult to do, but it has. That, that caught my eye with the two separate filters, as you mentioned. Yeah, everything Zach worked on, and it's great stuff. I, every, I come across his articles all the time, and what a, what a genius. Um, all right, so there's the filters, guys. I would just say, um, you know, I, I would follow Farhan's advice, and uh, don't, don't shy away from, from this. Don't just limit yourself to kind of repeating the values that were in the uh, whatever article that you're looking at, because your crystals will be different. And if you want to get optimum results, you really do need to play with this stuff. It's not that bad. It's not that hard. One piece of advice is don't get frustrated with the software. You know, like every piece of software that you use, you have to play with it a bit so you get get to you figure out what they're asking for, what they're outputting, what the format is, when you have to hit the uh, alt key and, and other stuff. But once you get through it, all the software that we've mentioned is is fairly easy to use. And it produces really dramatically useful uh, uh, results. So, you know, uh, don't shy away from it. Get in there and design those filters. Yeah, right. absolutely. Go ahead. But, yeah, anything else on that? No, no. I'm just saying absolutely the, uh, the experimentation. And the other thing, too, is that uh, once, once you've found a, uh, a, you know, that you've gone through your process, the second time through is a lot easier. Oh, yeah, it is. It is. And it actually starts to get get fun i mean you, you're starting to really get a sense of what's going on and you're kind of controlling the 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 results and you say oh, i want that thing a little bit wider <laughs> what would i have to change the caps for on that and you come up with your own solutions like you said the terminations are important and i found that in uh in one of the bit x's my terminations the termination that i needed was far removed from what was actually being provided by the amplifiers on either side of the filter and i i figured out that a if, that I could just come up with a little toroidal transformer to do the impedance match. 
And once I put those two little toroidal transformers in there, dramatic. I mean, a really, really noticeable increase. It's, yep. The thing sounded really smooth. And, uh, you know, theory, theory works. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Pete, the next thing we were going to talk a little bit about was construction practices. And this is, uh, I think we're moving here from the, from the kind of the theoretical design realm to the more kind of nuts and bolts practical part of home brewing SSB gear. Um, I'll turn to you because you are the uh, you are the real tribal knowledge guy here. And what words of wisdom would you share with our listeners who might be about ready to embark on a sideband construction project? I, I have one word I'd like to start with: noodling. Noodle. <laughs> Noodle. <laughs> Do a lot of noodling. I mean, um, uh, you know, it, it's one thing just to, and, and there's nothing wrong with building two of like like an initial prototype and yeah. get the thing working and start with a big piece of copper <laughs> yep. and then, and then worry about shrinking things down. But I mean, there's some, some circuits that en enable themselves to, to be built, uh, without a lot of care as you would more in the art of generation, uh, part of the process. And, and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, things like, uh, the standard audio amplifier, you, you need to exercise care when you build things like that, but it doesn't have to be as uh, as much of a concern as the final RF amplifier stage, where you get um, uh, you get a concern for uh, things such as uh, feedback and uh, is it going to oscillate. But I, I think before you start anything, start with a block diagram. If you, especially if it's something that you're throwing together yourself versus some construction article. Start with a block diagram and look at all the blocks and see what makes some sense. And then it's all a matter of real estate. How can you place those blocks? And there's certainly nothing wrong with uh, doing not only horizontal construction, but uh, vertical construction. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, I always say in addition to noodling, you, you got to do a little DFMA. And for those of you who have a manufacturing background, that's uh, de designed for manufacturing and assembly. I mean, later on, you may actually need to fix something or you may need to change something. You may need to tweak something. And if it's buried in the bowels of all this, you know, Manhattan-style construction, you'll never be able to, to work on it and get it fixed. So starting with a block diagram makes some sense in that you can chunk this thing in a way that says I can build that as a sub-module and maybe build it vertically or maybe put it over in this corner make it a separate board. I mean, I frequently make the... Uh, microphone and audio amplifier separate board unto itself off of a main board and uh, one of the things that I have done is to uh, bend up a piece of uh, and you can buy this stuff at Home Depot is a uh, is a piece of the what's uh, flashing galvanized metal flashing yep. and you can bend that in a vise and I'm, I make a u-shaped uh, structure out of it and you can mount boards vertically on, on the u-shape and then mount that to your main board and uh, so that, that works very well. So, uh, and the idea, too, is if you build everything on one board, if you want to change something, makes it a little difficult. Whereas if you build it in sub-assemblies, if you say, gee, I'd like to try a new audio amplifier or try a little different circuit, uh, having them on separate boards uh, facilitates that process. So, I mean, you got to be thinking ahead, <laughs> especially if it's something you're you're just throwing together yourself versus taking some construction article and saying, okay, I'm going to build that. Oh, yeah. So, uh, and, and you got to pay attention to grounds. And, and how am I going to have a common ground for everything? And, of course, uh, 
uh, using a copper board and, and, you know, in some cases uh, soldering that to a main board. You get a good ground plane, so you have all common grounds, and you, you aren't going to have ground loops in there and signals running around all over the place. So start first with uh, a good block diagram. And then construction practices, and the way I approach it is I start from the back end first. In other words, if this is going to be a transceiver, I'll start with the audio amplifier first, and I get the audio amplifier working. So I know that that's working. I mean... There's nothing worse than building a whole radio, never doing any testing, <laughs> and it doesn't work. <laughs> and you say, "Okay, where's the problem?" You there's know, a lot you, of there's a lot of those rigs lying around garages and basements <laughs> right now. Yeah, you know, where's the problem? So start with the audio amplifier first, and then uh, I next will attack the um, the product detector and uh, and the BFO. So once you have the audio amplifier working and have the product detector and BFO, I build a little simple test oscillator. And just run a run a little signal right into the BFO. If I hear an output into the audio amplifier, I now have three stages working. I have the audio amplifier, product detector, and I have the BFO. And then it's you know on through the line. And so simple test gear, like a one transistor test oscillator, uh, can can really pay big dividends in terms of when you're building this. So that's part of the construction practices too. Is is to have some make it make the unit that you're building part of the test process That's right so yeah. as you're going through it you're you're testing as you go along all right and we got to we're going to i think we're going to talk about test gear next so we'll we'll, we'll get into yeah, that but right. one thing i wanted to ask you about Pete and this is something that i've been kind of uh, kind of torn on and and I, I i get kind of i see differing views in the articles and on the websites from guys who have been really successful in building let's say let's focus here on like ssb transceivers there are there are folks out there uh, I think Frank Harris, the guy who wrote From Crystals to Sideband, who's a fantastic builder and came up with a wonderful book. Frank is a real strong advocate of putting each stage in a separate shielded box and then, you know, running, uh, you know, even with BNC connectors, coax to do all the RF and AF interconnections. But he is really very big on separate boxes. Now, that's sort of kind of one kind of a kind of hardcore approach to shielding. I guess on the other side, if you look at the way the BIDX is done, there's actually very little shielding in in most of the kind of the, the, the boards for, for BIDX and most of the, even the Manhattan construction. Farhan recommended building the RF amplifier stages on a separate board and putting them some distance from the rest of the rig. But I think many of us have gone ahead and put those RF stages on the same board, it requires a bit more care, but we're certainly not in with the BIDX going in there and putting every one of these stages in, you know, in a box or an Altoids tin or surrounding it with copper clad board or, or anything like that. No RF tight boxes or anything like that. What do you, what do you think? I mean, is it, is it necessary to put everything in the box or is it a nice to do thing? Because it, it certainly, it adds a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, yes, it does. As a matter of fact, um, interesting you should mention that. I, I actually built one of my projects uh, called the J-Bomb. And the J-Bomb is an acronym for just a bunch of modules, J-Bomb. And all these modules are built in copper boxes. And uh, I can tell you, that radio really works well. <laughs> it really does. I, I didn't have any you know, problems with interactions or that sort of thing. But it does require 
uh, a lot of work to, as you say, to, to do that. And as a matter of fact, uh, on my website that uh, you can find by just doing a search on N6QW, there's a section called Construction Corner, and it shows you how to build a bunch of copper boxes. And, and I can tell you the, the radio really works well. Now, another advantage of the copper boxes, uh, while it takes a lot of work, you can move those boxes around anywhere. Yeah. Yep. You can move. You can stash them here, put them there, wherever they fit, and then you don't worry about any kind of interaction. So if you're looking for maybe sort of a semi-compact uh, type of rig, it's possible to do that with the copper boxes. But but you're right, and I built a lot of radios without going through the copper boxes. But I can tell you, most of my radios, the RF final RF amplifier stage is a separate board. There yeah. there are very few with all on one board. Yeah, I know. And I, I think I got lucky with the um, with the Bidex and the Bidex 17, but that's probably because as I did what you recommended at the beginning of this section, and I started out with a fairly big board. I mean, when I look at my, my board uh, for both Bidex rigs that I built is um, eight and a half inches by 11. It's about the size of an A4. And not enough Basically. room. And no, I know, and I ran out. I know I could I could have used a bigger one, <laughs> but but I was able to keep that that amplifier, that RF amplifier, uh, far. Well, I was able to keep the <laughs> to use some some really weird slang terms. The gazintas away from the gazautas. Gazautas, yeah. Uh, you got to keep those inputs away from the outputs. You know, sometimes when you see guys who are kind of trying to homebrew their first rig. You could see that they're all they 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 may be starting with the idea that all they need to do is sort of electrically reproduce what they see in the schematic and that it'll work. But of course you can't, and it at, especially at, at certain critical places in the in the circuit, you have to keep those leads really short. You have to worry about any because you have a, if you have a little bit of a long lead from a, a capacitor going into the input of of an amplifier, especially. That long lead will be serving as half of, a, of an inductive coupling to somewhere else in the circuit. So you'll have, in effect, put a little coil, a pickup transformer that will allow for the dreaded feedback or capacitive coupling. So, I mean, I think that you, you kind of, as you go through home brewing, you develop kind of an instinct for where this stuff is important and where it's not. I mean, right. there, are, there are stages in these rigs where it's really not all that important. But, you know, you mentioned the AF amplifiers, and I agree with you. You know, it's not all that critical there. But what, what I found in some of my earlier homebrew efforts, I wasn't paying attention to putting that, for example, the microphone amplifier close to where the microphone jack was going to be. So I would have the microphone amplifier way off in the kind of the middle or the back of the rig, and I'd realize that it, that would require me to run a, you know, a, a pretty long lead to the input of that mic amplifier. And it, that lead was going to be in there in the same box with a lot of RF. So even if you shielded it pretty well, there's a good chance that you're going to be picking up RF. And RF from the uh, the output stage is going to be getting into the mic amp input. And off you go. And then you got the cat chasing its tail. <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And, and that's, you, you use the term tribal knowledge. Okay. Yep. <laughs> this is where the tribal knowledge comes in. Yeah, you know, it's uh, and the point I made is it's less critical, but that doesn't say it's not critical as as it's less critical than yeah, the RF amplifier stage, yeah, but it's still critical. Well, absolutely, think yeah, about yeah. that. And then the noodling. I guess I've been noodling all these years, or more noodling lately than I realized without even knowing that I was doing it until you made me aware of it. But 
for example, on the bit axis, I, uh, you know, conveniently the boards were the same shape as a the same size as a piece of printer paper. So before I actually started building, I sat down and I started drawing out, okay, in this corner, we're going to have the mic amp on the other corner. We're going to have the AF output amp, and then we're going to put the, the, the RF amplifier up in the upper left. And then I will, okay, where are the IF stages? Where am I going to put the crystal filter? You know, I think it's, it's simple stuff, but work with pencil. Pencil's better than pens because you're going to change your mind and have a big eraser. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you're going to change it. It's going to be kind of messed up, but then you end up, you know, you're able to go through several versions of it. And, and with this really simple, you know, pencil and eraser and piece of paper technology, it's, it's, you can come up with a really good kind of overall game plan for how you're going to lay this thing out. And then you can start saying, wait a second, is this realistic? I mean, how big are these components? And, you know, you could actually then take the components and sort of place them on the paper and see if they're roughly going to fit. I found that to be, to be very beneficial uh, on the BidX project. Uh, I, I want to do... Uh add to that by by giving away a trade secret okay go ahead trade trade secret is you use a piece of paper but i use quadrille paper line paper with squares on it and so like graph paper graph paper yeah yeah. and the thing is you can draw squares in there that actually represent the components and so you okay he's getting his he's getting his graph paper (laughs) there you go yeah there you go that's it that's it and, and the beauty of that is, is you, you get close to the size of the parts. So, so, you know, everything is like 10th inch. And so you can, uh, you can really draw the, the, the actual components right on that graph paper and know it will fit. And then what you can do is transfer that to the board. Now, I use the graph paper because then I make that as an input to the CNC machine. So I just say, okay, cut the squares. <laughs> but, uh, but the thing is, I'll know in advance with the with the uh, graph paper that uh, everything will fit or will fit in this area. And the other thing, too, is it lets you uh, minimize crossovers. By, by rearranging parts and components, you can have everything, you know, shortest path to ground. Uh, you, you can do things so that you're not running wires all over the place, and that really helps. So uh, use the graph paper. Yeah. And I think, you know, as, as I was listening to you, I think uh, one of the things that goes on here is now a lot of times we're, we're – we're, we're talking to guys who have experience working on um, on digital equipment. And in digital equipment, I mean, there's not as much of a concern about feedback and, uh, and layout and things like that. And, and so when they move into analog and especially RF, it's a whole different ballgame because you do have to think about all these kind of stray components that you might be creating. So... Uh, yeah, layout is important, and it's it's not just the design of the circuit; it's the design of the layout and how you're going to physically build this thing. And so, tribal knowledge, and uh, I think you know, the, it, it, you you can benefit from uh, looking at what others have done. But there's also a lot of kind of trial and error, and you, you know, like you said, you have to be prepared to kind of rebuild it and build it and start over. And you know, this is not for the faint of heart. This is not plug and pay, plug and play, Pete. Right, absolutely, and uh, something that uh, I, I've been noodling about here the last couple of days, Bill, and I wanted to share with you and share with the um, with those listeners. Uh, I discovered a supplier here in the United States that's selling uh, these small little boards that have the plated through holes. Oh wow! And and the and the small little boards are like around a buck. So these these are really inexpensive, and they're they're small size, but. Uh, 
uh, thought come to my mind that these are really good with the plated through holes uh, to build things like audio amplifiers and microphone amplifiers because you can actually put components on both sides of the board. Wow. So this way you can, uh, you know, minimize space and then uh, actually install the boards vertical on, on a main board, on a main copper board. So uh, to me, there's some, some things available to us that uh, we just need to think a little bit about. I had never thought about mounting parts on both sides of the board. And I'm I don't saying, know. I well, don't know. That, Pete, you're freaking me out. I'm getting nervous here. Right? <laughs> I, 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 can, I can feel myself getting tense. <laughs> I, I like to keep it all on top, all yeah. on one side of the board. Yeah. I don't like to flip things over. And, oh, my God. Both sides oh, yeah. of the board. No, I, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, well, you're, I'm you're obviously about, in the advanced course here. Yeah, uh, I'm thinking about space conservation. Space conservation. I, I'm, I'm thinking about buying bigger boxes. That's what I'm thinking about. <laughs> well, uh, you know... Yeah, I, I still have a desire to build a sideband rig into an Altoids tin. That that's that's still a goal of mine. I'm thinking about building one inside a milk crate. <laughs> <laughs> the cigar box wasn't big enough. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's see. Let, let's move on here. And one thing you mentioned, you mentioned test gear, and uh, having that little oscillator, just simple stuff. I mean, um, I think a lot of guys are deterred from home brewing because they think well i don't have i don't have the test gear and you know even when, when we started when 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 um when home brewing with solid state gear started there were actually people who kind of said oh listen this is not something that uh, amateurs can really do because you'll need so much expensive test gear you're going to need a spectrum analyzer and you're going to need all this other stuff that turned out not to be true for me uh, one of the real kind of uh, inspirational stories in terms of workbench and test gear is again um, is our friend Farhan in Hyderabad. He has on his uh, on his page on his phone stack page uh, a presentation of what kind of test gear he has in his shack and it, all these amazing things that he's brought to the uh, ham radio world. If you look there, it's uh, it's pretty simple test gear stuff. He's got a Tech 465 that he loves dearly, and that's really important. He's got a you know digital voltmeter. And a lot of the other stuff he's built himself, so uh, you don't need that much. What do you What do you think we should look at as a minimum, uh, Pete? Yeah, well, I l- l- before I get into detail, I want to also mention Wes Hayward W seven ZOI. That's right. Take a look. Take a look a picture of his shack, <laughs> and and it's all homebrew gear. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, predating EMRFD is uh, his his manual uh, solid state design. Yep. And in there is a whole series of real simple test gear that that he's built that you can build. I mean, things how to like build, how to build your own voltmeter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How to build your own voltmeter? It's got uh, attenuator, a step attenuator in there, which I really desire to build. Uh, RF generators. He's even got a sweeper in there, which is kind of interesting. Uh, uses a capacitor discharge to uh, to essentially sweep uh, frequencies. So uh, and there's SWR bridges and power meters and all sorts of things like that. Those are those are wonderful pieces of gear that have few components, just a few components. So uh, uh, don't don't overlook uh, brewing home brewing your your own test gear because it can be very useful to you. Um, with regard to w- what I have in my shack, this year I treated myself and I bought a 200 megahertz digital scope, and uh, I paid less than. Five hundred dollars for it, 
and I think you got one too that uh, right I see it sitting right, sitting right behind there, you. Right there. <laughs> and 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 the thing is, is it, what's so beautiful about that is it, it measures frequency too. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah, it does all the math. It does. It yeah, converts yeah. to RMS. Yeah, so so there you are. You know uh, that that's that's kind of worthwhile to to do that kind of thing. Um, but there's real simple things like a one transistor test oscillator. Yep. Uh, a one transistor test oscillator. If you if you're building a homebrew uh, crystal filter and a home you know homebrew radio, uh, buy a couple extra crystals uh, of the IF because that becomes the test oscillator because you can test the BFO with that. You can test the uh, crystal filter see it's working test all the state you'll test all the sta all the stages all the way up to the first mixer so that gives you a big leg up and uh you know uh, the price of transistors today you can buy some for three or four cents a piece so um not a big investment uh, you know for a buck you can have all the components you need to uh to build a one transistor test lighter the other thing is an rf probe yeah a simple crystal diode rf probe now it won't necessarily give you accurate readings in terms of rf levels but it can tell you if there is an rf level right. if you don't get if you don't get a reading on that there's nothing coming out of there <laughs> and so so it's real. it's a go no go tester uh so certainly uh ha having that available to you the other thing is and and you're going to think i'm nuts when i say this but a good old-fashioned analog meter and i'm talking about a bom good old-fashioned bom <laughs> I have one it's, right over there. I, a, I bought one at the at the Manassas Ham Fest. I know. I agree with you. You got to see that thing, that needle move up and down a little bit. You got to need yeah, relative. Well, the, the other thing too is like uh, with the digital meter, that thing will float all over the place and it drives you nuts. It's you know it's updating itself every thirty millimicroseconds. Uh, if I want to know if there's a voltage present, I don't want to have to wait till it settles. So that's right. An, an analog meter is is worth its weight in gold. A digital voltmeter. On the other hand, it's worth its weight in gold. And I, I want to make an input here. I, I've seen some of the digital voltmeters for $7. Yeah. And I've seen some for 700 <laughs> Probably the $7 one is great for just general go-no-go -go testing. But probably making an investment of 40 or $50 in a digital voltmeter is probably a, a good thing. Yeah. So. Um, you know, when you're, it's like buying tools. You can buy a pair of pliers for two bucks, or you can buy one for fifteen. I probably buy the one for fifteen because I'll have to buy six <laughs> two-dollar <laughs> ones, six two-dollar ones, finally to get one that's good. So, you know, be a little cautious about what you're buying and what you're investing in. But I'd say, as a, as a minimum, now there's some some really good. Um, uh, Articles and applications for the Arduino, and you mentioned that with a DDS. I mean, you can build a, an Arduino um, uh, driving a, one of these DDS chips and uh, with an LCD readout, and probably have about twenty-five dollars invested, and and you're you're good to go. You know, you you've got a good digital signal source. Now you may need to build a little RF amplifier. You may need to put a little filtering on the output of that DDS, but you know that's not difficult to do and you if you have a scope then of course you can look at that output but by the way just to digress here one second um i i bought believe it or not a, a pro mini uh arduino for two dollars and fifty cents on ebay 
And then it doesn't have the interface so that you can load the software. And that was another $2.50. So that hooks into USB port. And this thing is the size of a postage stamp. Oh, man. And so I'm saying for for you know building internally embedding this into a viva italia viva italia <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> embedding this in in a radio is amazing and i mean i can i can see all kind of application the only thing i regret is i didn't buy five of them for, <laughs> for two dollars a piece you know <laughs> and i only bought one because i said well, well you gotta, you gotta watch like, the budget you gotta watch the budget. yeah 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 but i'm saying you know for for five bucks i i now i now have a general purpose so that I could even buy the uh, the uh, at mega chip and put a 16 megahertz crystal oscillator on it and load the software on it. No, and you know, so, I mean, so, you, so there you are. You yeah, know, you, you know how analog and, and and discrete component I am, but even I have been lured in by the uh, amazing capabilities of the Arduino, and it's uh, it's just really it's cool. They've got the, and they've got this whole kind of cool culture built up around it, and it's amazing yeah. things you can do. You know, on you know what I mentioned before, the little device that I used to kind of manually generate the RF to test the crystal filter, the guys over at the New Jersey QRP Club, uh, George Heron, uh, N2APB, and Joe Everhart have come up with uh, a, a device that does does the whole thing. It takes it through the whole cycle, and as you move it through, as you move the, you, you it'll actually sweep the crystal, and then come up with I think a, I think it actually outputs a file. That produces the graphical representation. So instead of my kind of writing down the values every hundred hertz, you just plug this thing in. It automatically sweeps the filter and then sends to your computer the file that shows the uh, the bandwidth and the bandpass, which is really right. cool. And it, and I, I I really don't think there's a whole. I think it's mostly in the software. And you just got to you add, have to add a few different kind of outputs on it. But it wouldn't be that hard to go from what I have. To what these guys have described, and uh, that I thought that was a really great episode to chat with the designers. Yeah, a- absolutely, and that's that's the other thing too is that the Arduino-based uh, uh, test equipment. Uh, there's uh, antenna analyzers and all all sorts of things like that that uh, really work make it worthwhile. But the other thing that I- I'd like to suggest having in the shack is test gear. Is I'm amazed at how many people do not have a power and SWR bridge. Yep. Because they say, well, the transceiver I have has it in there and it'll tell me what it is. But it, it And the other thing, too, is is to build one that um, you can use at low power levels, yeah. at the QRP level. You know, so, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, people don't realize, you know, what that, that little SWR bridge could be telling you. For example, yeah. if, you're, if you're building a 20-meter transmitter and you've got an antenna up that you know is resonant at 20 meters... And you plug your new device in there, and suddenly you see that the SWR is about six to one or something like that. It's a hint that you're probably putting out RF not at 20 meters. You're throwing yeah. you're throwing all kinds of other RF out there because if you were putting out a signal at 14 megahertz, you would still get an SWR of you know close to what you had with the other rig. So it's it's kind of an early warning. Also, I, I've found that in you know when test home you know testing uh, uh, homebrew gear is if I'm when I speak into the mic if the SWR sort of stays where it's supposed to be that's a good sign however if if I notice that on voice peaks the SWR is spiking up oscillations eh, our old friend 
yeah, yeah. <laughs> the beast is on the run. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. You know, um, I, I've been working with a local ham here, just recently got licensed, and although he has an engineering background, and he had built this transceiver kit. And I said, well, do you got any output? And he said, well, I don't know. <laughs> and I said, well, do you have an SWR bridge? Can you see any voice peaks? And it, he had one, but the power level was so low that it wasn't even moving the meter. Yeah. And so that, there's something to be said for building a, a low-power SWR bridge. And the the, the articles abound. Uh, I mean, you can, you can whip one up pretty simple and not a lot of parts. And that's where uh, if, if I ever go to Hamfest or per- surplus stores, I got my shopping list. Look for meter movements, you know, like... 100 microamps, <laughs> you know, look for RF chokes, look for this kind of thing. So, uh, you know, having, having those kind of parts uh, available to you. And I guess you're going to cover that in the, in the next section here about the junk boxes and what have you. But, but yeah. basic test equipment, a scope, save up, get one. Get a good DVM, get an analog meter, build a test oscillator. Uh, matter of fact, if you can find an old grid dip meter somewhere on the internet for about ten bucks, snap it up. <laughs> it's a good se- source of RF to check radios to see if it's receiving anything. You know, whenever I go to you mentioned a ham fest, and just to wrap this up, whenever I go to the ham fest, um, I kind of go in with the intention of buying one item in several different categories. I try to buy one piece of test gear, one book, one kind of group of components, and but I try to get a, a book, a tool, a piece of test gear, and bring it all back. Because then over time, it kind of, it kind of builds up on the bench. I, I have a little audio frequency generator that I find quite useful too. I picked that up in in the UK, in um, Maplens, their equivalent to Radio Shack, and I, I use that all the time. It's nice to have a little AF uh, signal generator. But but speaking of of Hamfest, Pete, this gets us to what we're going to talk about here: building a junk box and junk box assembly and uh and i think this is uh, you you if you're going to be a home brewer you really need to have at least a minimal kind of junk box and junk box i think is a misnomer i mean it, it, it implies this kind of box of of garbage on the ball i think it's more most of us now think of it as sort of a more organized stock of of useful components that's so i guess it's it to, to explain to people really what we're talking about is you know, a, a set of on-hand electronic components that are used in just about every circuit that we see and work on. And I guess it's more like a, more like a component stock, wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely. A- absolutely. And, and I, I guess uh, if, you, if you look at the, if you do a little, little noodling here, Bill, you'll see uh, parts and, and part numbers keep showing up over and over and over again. And, and the other aspect of that is uh, buying things in quantity. Let me give you a really good example. One of the local suppliers here, Mill Order, uh, was selling 1N914 diodes. I think if you bought, um, you could buy 10 for a dollar, which sounds like 10 cents a piece. Or you could buy 100 for $2. <laughs> so the answer is buy 100. Yeah. Because they're two cents a piece, not ten cents a piece. And, yeah, but you know, but you know, Pete, even even with components, and some of them out there are are more expensive than that. Even in those cases, I always have a rule that if I need two of them for a project, I'll go ahead and buy three or four of them. Right. Right. He's got four. He's holding up four fingers, because 
it's it's highly likely that if you're using this component in the current project, your next component, especially if it's also on HF involving RF and amateur frequencies, you're going to use one of those things or something similar in the future. So even things like variable capacitors or trimmer caps or anything like that, I always deliberately buy more. And over the years, this has added um, significantly to the component stock here uh, in the in the ham shack. Absolutely. And uh, there's a, a certain stock of uh, devices that are used over and over again, like the 2N3904s, 2N3906s, uh, the 1N4148s, 1N914s, uh, LM386s, uh, you know, and uh, standard uh, capacitors and resistors, uh, 10 nanofarads or 100 nanofarads, you know, those, those kind of things uh, are everywhere you look. That, that's what they're using. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I go through 0.1 microfarad bypass capacitors so fast that I, I've just gone out and bought, you know, there I buy big lots. Yeah. And I, and I uh, maybe this gets to a point where we're talking about, about storage, and I don't know how you store your components, but I, I, I have, you can see on the shelf behind me, you'll see some kind of colored boxes back there. And those, my kids will be embarrassed, but those are baby white boxes. They're, they were the right size. They're just, I guess, the size like a little bit smaller than a shoebox. And they have a lid that kind of opens up. And after all, the baby wipes are out. And we stopped using baby wipes here about about 14 years ago. <laughs> um, but I started using them as kind of good recept, good the good places to put components. So that's where they are. And 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 I and I just write with a um, a smarty uh, marker of what they are on either side, and they kind of fit together well. They're kind of interlocking, and that's so where I keep all the components. And, uh, you know, there are some components that you use more than others. Like I said, the uh, 0.1 microfarad caps, I use them all the time on almost every project. So they get their own box. So I don't have to go fumbling around and looking for them. Um, the uh, I was just going to comment that you also need to look um, outside of uh, the standard, uh, uh, standard amateur radio or radio supply houses. And I've discovered uh, that the people who do beads, you know, this little beading, they make these bead jewelry. Yeah. They sell these bead storage boxes. Wow. And you can get like a 16 compartment box for like a buck ninety nine. But yeah. they're not in in the electronics piece. They're in the craft stores. Oh, wow. So no. I usually get those. And, and what's nice is you, it's got a big lid. And so you can, you know, put all your parts in there. And the other thing that that's great for is uh, hardware. I put a lot of nuts and bolts in, in those boxes, so I got one box that's got hardware in it. You know, open yeah. it up, and it's got the 440s and 256 and everything else. So, buck ninety nine is a good price. My uh, the guy, the, the baby wipe guy, just came in. You, you <laughs> can see him there. The, the, the listeners can't see him. Uh, he's getting ready to go off. He's a lifeguard now. He's going to go off being a oh, lifeguard cool. this morning. But uh, say hello, Billy, because they haven't heard from you in a long time. Hi. Yeah, that's Billy. Last last time he was here, he was probably six years old. He's now sixteen. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, he's uh, he's going to be heading out. Are you going now? Uh, yeah, I just need to call Jack and some stuff. Are you, oh, yeah. What are you going to do? I just need to arrange for someone to watch you now, and then I'm going to. All right. Well, let me talk to you before you go. All right. All right. Yeah, he's getting ready to go off uh, lifeguard duty here at the local pool. T t tough duty, 16 years old, single, and all those girls out there. Yeah, you know, tough he, duty. Tell I, me about it. I, yeah. I, I was the one. <laughs> I was the one who recommended this job, so I think I, I could I could take credit yeah, for this because that's the kind of job go. I wanted to have when I was 16. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You know, I'm telling you, it's a pretty pretty good deal. 
but anyway, uh, yeah, in terms of components, I mean, I, I think you, the, the box you described is great. The um, one box, one kind of container that I don't like, I see a lot of guys using it. It's this kind of little, little um, kind of collection of like kind of one-by-one drawers, little plastic drawers that come out. They come out kind of straight out. I've always had trouble with those things. I don't know why. They kind of break, and I can't get my fingers in there. But I like what you described for the, uh, from the craft store. But, um, I mean, components that I find that I need a lot of, that I always buy, uh, 2N2222 transistors, 2N3904 transistors, MPF102 FETs. I use a lot of those. Try to find those today. Uh, I know, but there's a lot of equivalents out there, too. There's a yeah. lot, of, lot of stuff. Uh, IRF510s, um, the, 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 the FET uh, transistors used in a lot of uh, final amplifiers in, in the BIDX. And then here's something that you really just... Got to be careful. You really can't pick these up at, at ham fests. You can, but it's a bit risky. And you certainly can't pick them up at the few remaining Radio Shack stores. Uh, toroids. I mean, with the toroids, I think you got to buy them. you got to order them. And it, it's worthwhile. There's a lot of companies that will sell a toroid kit. And you'll get an assembly of commonly used uh, toroidal cores. But it's worthwhile having those on hand because we use them a lot. Uh, I want to inter- interject a comment here, uh, something that I got burnt on recently, uh, and that's, uh, you know, you look at a deal too good to be true, and it's probably not, yeah. is uh, I one of the my, my favorite RF transistors, aside from the IRF 510, is the 2SC2166. You see those, yeah. uh, they're good for about four or five watts. Well, I bought five of them for 10 bucks uh, from China. And I said, man, this is a really good deal because they're upwards of $3 a piece. So I, and it was free shipping. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, I think they were rebranded. They don't work. Yeah. They're not very good. I mean, it's kind of, yeah, counterfeit components out there. It's, it's, yeah. it's a strange so you, thing to be worried about, but there yeah, it is. So be, be, care, be careful of that because uh, you, you can really get burnt. And I kind of got burnt. They, they sort of work, but they're not full power output because I, I have some good ones. You put the good one in the circuit, you get three, four watts out. You put, put I, I cycled all five of them through, and, and I got, and most I could get out was two watts. Yeah. So nothing's changed other than the device. And so just be careful what you're buying when you're buying these large lots of components, uh, especially from China. Some of that stuff is, uh, is not too good. Yeah, it's, it's been a real problem lately, yeah. It, resistors. I mean, we all need a large collection of resistors. You know, what I've been doing is I take a resistor. I have a big board, just a kind of, it's like, a, I guess, about a, about maybe two feet wide by about three feet long. And I get, like, these kind of reels of resistors. And I just roll out the reel, and I thumbtack the resistors on there, and then I go go alongside and write the values. So if I need, a, you know, a 100-ohm resistor, you, you can save yourself a lot of time homebrewing by making this stuff easily uh, accessible. And so I just reach down and grab that 100 ohm resistor and, and, and move. When you, you know, we have limited, we all have limited time for homebrewing. So you really do have to pay some attention to efficiency because if you're going to be spending three, four minutes searching for a component every time you put a component on the board, man, you're going to be adding hours to construction time. Sure. It's going to take you a lot longer to build that thing. So a little bit of forethought in this area is useful. I do the same thing for capacitors too. I like to have a capacitor board. Yeah, absolutely. A, enamel wire. I am. I'm a big consumer of enameled wire, and then and also insulated wire. And I have a couple of shoe boxes with those in there. But anyway, those are kind of my thoughts on uh, 
on, yeah. on junk boxes. What else do you think, Pete? Uh, I wanted to comment on enameled wire, and uh, I have been purchasing enameled wire from Amadon. When I buy uh, toroids from them, I'll usually have them throw in a couple of uh, rolls of wire. Now, here's the reason why I buy them from Amadon. I'll specify that I want red and green enamel. Mm-hmm. And so when you're making bifiller wound transformers, oh, yeah. you know which wire is which wire. And let me tell you, that saves a lot of time because then you don't have to go through and say, okay, w- which is the start and which is the beginning and which wire is which wire. So um, uh, if you can get colored, uh, if you can get the colored enamel wire, that makes construction go a lot lot faster, believe me. Yeah, Doug DeMoe actually recommended if you didn't have different colors, go ahead and paint them. <laughs> yeah, there you <laughs> yeah, go. There, there yeah. you go. Yeah. There you go. But uh, yeah, that that really worked. That's a little tribal knowledge. A little tribal knowledge. You know, uh, Pete, I think we're running out of time here. We haven't even gotten to tubes. Can we do tubes in the next episode? Sure. All right. Tubes you, are good. If tubes are good. If you're willing to come back, sure. Uh, let's 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 think of a part four, and we'll do tubes and other stuff. If you don't mind, I hope you will. Yeah. No. no I want no to just I want to just to close with um, a couple comments about uh, an email. This isn't really the, well, let's see, hold on, we'll make it informally. There you go, that's not really the gong, but the um, solder smoke mailbag. We got a nice email from uh, from Grayson Evans in Turkey, who was inspired by uh, one of our previous episodes and has included some information that we on stuff we talked about in, in an updated version of his book, Hollow State Design. And Grayson is going to be uh, be putting out uh, ideas on uh, uh, some of the stuff that we talked about here into hol- into uh, his new book, Hollow State Design. So uh, keep an eye out. I think it might be available. It's, it's a nice book, and it was really kind of cool to get that feedback from Turkey, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. I got to go get Billy off to lifeguard duty. And I'm, oh. sorry, I'm sorry we didn't get to talk about tubes, but I'm glad because it gives us something for the next episode. You bet. I'll have my tube collection out. All right, you get, yeah, because it's, it's kind of a break. It's kind of different. And this was the uh, the sideband sidecars episode. I put pictures of uh, Pete's tube projects up on the blog, so if you guys want to take a look at that, go ahead and uh, and and take a look. I think you, there's some beautiful projects there, and that'll give us something to talk about about next time. Okay, all right, Pete. Thanks very much for 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 being with us yet again here. I really enjoyed it. I think we covered a lot of ground. You bet, absolutely. Have a great weekend. You too. And to everybody, uh, 7-3 from Northern Virginia. And Pete, tell them where you are. I'm in Newberry Park, uh, California, near Los Angeles. All right. Okay. 7-3 to all. Thanks a lot. 7-3s.